Greetings, everyone. It's, it's what? <laughs> again, then again, with Ken and Glenn. Sorry, we were a little feverish to get started. Uh, oh, oh. So That's anyway. not funny. <laughs> no, it's pretty funny, actually. <laughs> it all depends on context. Here in the studio, it's very funny. <laughs> you know, Glenn, I think you would agree with me if I were to say something like, one of the themes of this show, if we have one, <laughs> might be that history, this inquiry into the past, that history is, provides perspective. I would hope that that is <laughs> the main thing. I, I, would, I would hope so. We're not, it's not necessarily instructional. It's not telling you exactly what to do because people did something in the past, but it does provide perspective. And I think with that in mind, last week you had the idea to talk today about infectious disease, plague, and that sort of thing because it's kind of timely. Epidemiology has an effect <laughs> on the historical progress of things. Exactly. As a matter of fact, even even now, as I speak to you, gentle listener, I'm holding in my hands a book called Armies of Pestilence, The Impact of Disease on History. Uh, the very thing Glenn just said, but in title form and published. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, R.S. Bray, he beat us to the punch. Uh, but that book, so since you said last week, let's talk about this this next week. I, of course, have been you know digging into this book out of my library. And there's another book in my library called Greek Fire, Poison Arrows, and Scorpion Bombs. Biological and Chemical Warfare in the Ancient World by Adrian Meyer. And while that one specifically deals with weaponization of biological pathogens, it, it sort of dovetails with, with how things are contagious, what, what constitutes an epidemic, or how can you get it to be contagious? Because as it turns out, trying to weaponize disease is really hard. It, 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 <laughs> it is. You, would, you know, the, they started out by just, here's, here's a sick pig. Let's hurl it let's, into that city, and maybe the they'll catch something. Exactly. You know, but but even even in let's the modern world, let's poison a well. Let's drop a, a sheep with anthrax down that well. Yeah, you know? it's but you know, weaponizing disease means that you need to make sure your side is not subject to the weapon. Exactly, and, and that that's the tricky part. Exactly, in, in in the modern from the modern modern twentieth century whatever perspective, that's the We're hard. We're in the twenty first century, Glenn. I know, but, <laughs> but we. Well, <laughs> I know, I do it all the time. Let's say we, started, we, we started this scientific approach yes, to biological go. weapons yes. in the 20th century, yes. let's say. But it's like, take a grenade for exa an example. It's easy to make a grenade, but you want yeah. to make sure the grenade goes where it needs to and doesn't right. blow you up. It's the same thing with biologic weapons. Right, right. And it takes an understanding of, of how disease works, vectors of infection and things like that, that people simply didn't understand when they tried to weaponize it. There's crude understanding, but how long a pathogen or biological agent lives outside the body and is able to be communicated is going to, uh, to affect your effectiveness <laughs> tremendously. Yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, just shows you that, that there are these efforts. I mean, uh, in Meyer's book, she, you know, she's got, you know, documented things as early as 500, 1000 B.C. where they're trying it to really varying degrees of success. Uh, <laughs> And part of the reason for the varying degree of success is not understanding how it spread. Now, leaving aside military applications or intentionally trying to use it for warfare, let's go ahead and just take our classic plague, the bubonic plague, you know, and the various manifestations it's had. Once again, you're dealing with populations that simply didn't know how it worked. They didn't know how it worked, but they... They understood they could, some things that could deal with it. And, right. And oddly they, enough— They strike us as remarkably I, modern just because there's a lot that empirical observation can tell exactly. you. Exactly. And, it, you know, social distancing. That's what— we're, Absolutely. We're all sitting here now in our self-imposed or not quarantines, and, <laughs> and things have shut down, and the History Center shut down. But 
not being around a lot of people prevents the spread of disease. You don't have to understand germ theory to get that. Right. And in ancient right. times and in the medieval period with the bubonic plague, they knew if someone had the plague, you get away from them. Right. And and, and you separate as many people as possible And it's apart. so crazy. You know, we're, we're seeing this now of how to contain the population get away from the people that do have it, but then also make sure the people that do have it aren't also getting away and thereby spreading it. These seem like modern problems, but, you know, that's why we have Boccaccio's Decameron, you know, <laughs> a, a wonderful work of literature about people trying to escape the plague and the governments of the Middle Ages and of the earlier manifestations with Justinian, Justinian's Flea. That, that's a really good book, It too. is a good book. You know, where they realize not only do we have to isolate people, we've got to th- keep them from going somewhere. You know, that's a thousand year plus time span between, well, when was just the, five, the 540s, 530s, yeah. 540s. So actually, yeah, 1500 years later, we're dealing with some of the same issues and seeing some of the same applications, it's just hopefully we have a better understanding of the underlying cause. Right. And I, and I think I think that's the key. All they had back then was to prevent the spread of the disease. Right. Uh, contain it somehow. C- contain it. And that's really what, I mean, the news now says the most effective thing you can do is wash your hands and distance yourself from people. Right. They, they knew that right. in the medieval period. Right. And, and so, you know, it, it's interesting how those preventative measures can go. And, and the real difference is, from a technological and scientific standpoint, where we've come in treating those who have actually been right. exposed to or contracted right. said disease right. of choice. Right. The, uh, you know, there is even a serum for some types of the plague now, which is astounding. But let's use that to segue into, you know, our reaction to this particular virus. And I am not remotely downplaying it at all, but, but just to do the math, and I did this on the way over, point zero 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 three five percent of the United States has been exposed to this. But that doesn't lessen our reaction being concerned taking preparation i mean that, that's all still warranted right. what i'm saying is put that into the perspective of say europe 1340 and depending on what village you're in 90 percent of the people are dead these people and, and they don't and they don't know why it's happening we at least do the the mindset the the things that are going through people's mind in that era you know, that's something I would love to explore a little bit. <laughs> well, and the, yeah, the, you know, they see it as the uh, the curse of God, right. punishment for sin. But yeah, so these these pandemics, too, we have the advantage of being able to look back and put things in perspective right. and understand them. So the Black Plague in Europe lasts a long time. Right. It lasts for decades. And it, and it eliminates overall between... 40 to 60% of the entire European population, depending on right. what figures you believe. That is significant right. over a long period of time. It totally transforms the society. Now, you look at— you, Death you, of feudalism, some would say. Yeah, some <laughs> would say. And, yeah, the rise of organized labor, even, depending <laughs> yeah, on how yeah. much you want to bandy those definitions about. Right. You skip ahead to the Spanish flu in 1918, 1919. The time period at last is only about 12 to 18 months. You know, the death rate, when you look at everything, even though the numbers are so huge because the population has grown, the death rate is about 2 to 2.5%, two which is, again, when the world is filled with millions of people, 50 million people dying is a lot. Right. But the percentages right. over time. The other great societal transformation due to disease is, of course, 
the North American and South American Native Americans. Absolutely. When, when especially DeSoto and other Europeans come in, right, they spread disease. And you talk about people not remotely knowing what's causing this. Oh, right. And it literally destroys 90% of the population and in an incredibly short amount of time. Right. And it's important to note, and, and Bray does in his book, Armies of Pestilence, it's not that, say, Native American peoples didn't know that diseases existed. Clearly they did. They, did. they knew they did. As a matter of fact, there had been an epidemic of some sort in the Maya population and in the Aztec population separately just a few years before the appearance of the the Spaniards on the Isthmus of, of America. So so they know that they exist, but they're, let's, let's phrase it this way, they're homegrown. They're endemic. They're, right. they're, this is a disease that, They've you know, seen it before. We've seen it before. This is nothing we've seen before and doing things you know we've never seen a disease do before uh yeah this doesn't just make you know this doesn't just kill grandma and make us all have the sniffles this kills all of us right and even if this is a big if even if one can actually i guess it's not that big an if let's say the total number of deaths in the central americas from just the disease probably isn't what it is in north america proper for I, I don't know the reasons, but it right. just probably isn't, according to what I've been reading. But it still disrupts society, disrupts leadership, disrupts government, and though, both of those factors are hugely important in helping Cortez solidify the, his conquest of the Aztec. And there is an epidemic of smallpox that precedes Pizarro. So by the time he right. gets to you know what is now Peru and in the, in the Inca Empire, they're already engaged in a civil war brought on by the death of the leadership from the smallpox that the Spaniards introduced, that's you know, how, that's four how years fast before. It moves, yeah, exactly, exactly. So you've got all of these. Once, once one thing is knocked out of whack in a in a complex civilization, and even though it's pre-technological, it's still complex. Everything else can then come tumbling down so much more. And, and you mentioned the DeSoto expedition. There's the great example. The Mississippian culture is pretty amazing, pretty complex, pretty vibrant. And all it takes widespread trade routes, wide governmental trade systems, route, exactly. And all it takes is one misguided Spaniard wandering around for a couple of years. The rates of infection, even if the outright waves don't decimate the population, it recurs in waves, and that's the thing. It's over over the next ten to fifteen years. It keeps recurring each time. It it shakes the population, shakes the culture, shakes the structure even more until it disintegrates. Right. Right, and even even the Spanish flu, even in the 20th century, there was a, se- a smaller, but there was a second wave mm-hmm. that hit. And, and people, you know, you, you're talking about how people react to it. So they may have spiritual reasons. They may have astronomical reasons that they're trying to attribute this incredibly virulent spread of disease to. Mm-hmm. And yet then they know even when it seems that the worst is over, well, at least, you know, we're kind of still here. Right. Whoosh, there, there it, it comes, is again. Here yeah. it comes again. Yeah. And, you know, the cyclical pattern, I mean, that's what the bubonic plague had. Uh, and when we, I say the bubonic plague or the Black Death. There's actually three different strains of the bubonic plague that were all spreading simultaneously, which right. didn't help things because you think you're recognizing the signs of bubonic, then it turns out to be pneumonic, and then, it, it, then it's the one that's the blood-based, which is just horrific. But, but they also occur. I mean, the first time in Europe, Justinian's flea, famously in the 500s, mm-hmm. then again in the Middle Ages, then again in the uh, 1600s, and, and, and smaller outbreaks between those. And, you know, each time it kills less because 
evolution, folks. You're, you're, you know, th- things are adapting, things are, but also each time, as you said earlier, people are drawing what, what happened before. We, we know a little bit, we may not still know about germ theory, but we know a little bit more about containing it early. And so that, you know, by the time you get to those outbreaks, uh, you know, in the, in the reign of Charles II, it, it's not as bad. You know, huge air quotes yeah. over the over the microphone. Not as bad, people still, but not as bad. And you know, the same thing happens, like you said, with with the smallpox. Is there's, of course, that that initial just catastrophe for the Mississippian cultures that that spreads, by the way, across the continent because, as you mentioned, they had great trade routes. They've got trade routes and they've got roads between these major cities. Right. So there, there's you know, the, as you said, the vectors. The vectors, exactly. They they go all up and down the Atlantic coast. They go as far as the west coast. You know, it's not as virulent the further out you go, but it does reach those places. That's the thing. And so then, you know, European colonization by France and England and some of the northern European countries start in earnest in the in the 18th century. It's like, oh, look at all these fields that are just lying here. Well, that's because people have recently died and you don't well, know it. Or not, or, or died 100, 150 or, years yeah, ago. Right, right. There's just, it oh, hasn't grown back in yet. Not, exactly. not a, an unkempt and un- exactly. un- unfoliated exactly. wasteland, but a people. And, a, and, you know, we've got to talk a little bit about when we, when we talk about smallpox and Native Americans. Of course, one of the one of the most prevalent things you hear all the time is, and then the insert colonial power here or insert American imperial power here, and then the American slash British slash French slash whoever was giving smallpox infected blankets to the Native Americans to wipe them out. And, yes, there is a discussion— Absolutely documented. There is a discussion during the the uh, the uh, it, Seven Years' War, French and Indian it's War. It's Amherst. It's Amherst. It's a, yes. it's a written letter, so it's, we have this letter. Right, right, where they do talk about it. Now, there is absolutely zero evidence they actually implemented it, but then, you know, someone could say, well, that's because they didn't want a written record of implementation. Well, they were certainly pretty free about talking about it. Right. And at this in, point in time— writing. Exactly. And, you know, I don't think—it <laughs> was the British Empire. I don't think it would have been shy about talking about it at all. But anyway— but fair point. Let's say, yes, they implemented it without secretly. Well, the problem with that theory is that there is no outbreak. If they tried it and there's no evidence they did, they certainly talked about it, certainly had no qualms about the idea, but there's no documented outbreak that follows these discussions. So, right. you know, part of that is that it would have been, that would have been a very ineffective way of, of doing that, right. for one thing. Because it also makes the British population susceptible to exactly. smallpox. Again, the question of when you weaponize it, how do exactly. you control the vectors? But this is also one of those things that once it gets into the public consciousness, or what we call today the urban legends, <laughs> <laughs> although it was out on the plains, how could it have been urbanized? But, you know, th- but then that, that story of this actual discussion during the Seven Years' War in the mid-18th century, gets transferred to, and that's what the uh, cavalry was doing to the Plains Indians in the late 19th century. And there's not a shred of evidence for that. There's not. At all. But it's one of those things that you keep seeing. I've seen two or three this past week, probably because of the climate we're in now, but it's, you know. No. Believe me, we know you got screwed. (laughs) No one's (laughs) doubting that. It's just this wasn't one of the elements that did it. This isn't one that did it. This isn't one of the elements that did it. And and when a a society does undergo a an epidemic or a pandemic or, or what have you, right. it it leaves marks on that society and its memory, especially sure. how the the disease tended to go. So, for example, you know the Black Death, as I said, lasted decades, and right. so that that leaves a mark on all of Europe. That's something that stuck. Even the Spanish flu, even though 
it was a relatively short amount of time, and I, I don't think many people know recognize this. Just like with you know COVID nineteen now, the the people at most at risk are older people with right. with respiratory issues and everything. Folks, the Spanish flu hit people in their twenties and thirties the hardest, right? Because of some weird thing with that age group's immune system, it got in there and created just a giant mess. So you have this generation that just fought the Great War. <laughs> And tens of millions of people died in the trenches and chewing barbed wire and all this stuff. And just when peace finally breaks out, here comes another wave of death that hits this exact this exact same generation and wipes out any again, depending on how you count it, right. the figures we have, anywhere from thirty to a hundred million people. Right. And this is not to say that, that older and younger people didn't die from the Spanish flu. Right. But the when you look at the peak, it's the twenty and thirty year olds. And man, I can't imagine oh, yeah. being you're, being you in served, that age group. You just served four, five, six years in the trenches, and you, and you made it. And you made it. I survived mustard gas. I survived chlorine gas. I survived machine guns, tanks, bombs, and now I'm dead from the flu. Holy moly! You know, and you want to talk about you know societal or cultural vectors? When DeSoto comes through what is now the American Southeast, that's an unprecedented thing, just because. Who is this person? What is this thing? What were these things he's bringing? Right. Then the disease afterwards. Th- these are t- two monumental things that, in a way, you, you talk about World War One and then this, this thing. This is this is what gives us a sense of continuity with those people. I think in a way. Yeah. That yeah. I'm sorry, just isn't warranted right now. I think I'm going to go ahead and say that well, just personally. And and once no. again, I'm not. Look, this is serious. My, but people, it's, I've heard people joke about what well, are some of the old. Well, you know what, my mom and dad are old. So, so no, this is personal. I right. don't want my mom and dad to die. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. But one, one wonders, or at least this one wonders, <laughs> has mass communication necessarily hindered or helped our response or our awareness of this disease in this time? You know, I I don't know. I, this this is pure speculation. I'm just throwing stuff out. You don't want me to make a comment. No, I do. On that. I do want you to make a comment on that. I do want you to make. A, that's why I threw that life grenade out there. Oh my gosh! Because I firmly believe that the demise of humanity is attributed pre- chiefly to two things: the 24-hour news cycle and the growth of social media. <laughs> There, we said it. There. <laughs> it's out um, there. It's out there. Because that's, that's you know, we, we are constantly bombarded with things from for-profit news sources right. that have to fill 24 hours. Right. And then when I hear about it, I go to my social media. I'm like, did you hear that my, quote, news source, unquote, <laughs> of choice just said this and that? Can you believe it? And then... It goes out right. and, and all the things and, and people run in circles and they scream and shout and they buy up all the toilet paper. <laughs> for, you know, for, for personal experience, I went to the, I, you know, I don't shop. I, I, I shop like <laughs> once every three weeks, even before. I, was, I can say I have never run into you in any store, <laughs> Ken Johnson, ever. I subsist on good vibes and, and air. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I went to shop. The, I, I don't shop. I went to, and I was like, wow, this the aisle really is cleaned out of toilet paper. How, and, and I thought to myself, and I'm not being, you know, crude here, just how much do you people defecate? I <laughs> find I can get by one four-pack well, last me two months. But that's just it. They don't <laughs> defecate anymore or less, even, with, if, even if they were on their second round of COVID-19, right? It's because they said, well, 
I'm going to go buy toilet paper because Bob said that he saw on Facebook where everybody's buying toilet paper. <laughs> right. And they're like, oh, really? Well, gosh, we only have like five rolls at home. Maybe I should go <laughs> oh, get yeah, some. Five. And when you get there, everybody has had the same thought. And right. instead of getting a bag of 10, right. they're taking these Costco-sized <laughs> things and they're having all their kids carry one to the car. And suddenly there's a totally artificially right. made shortage. Right. Right. And it's totally artificial. Exactly. So, yeah, those are our thoughts on uh, how the social media affects. Uh, <laughs> and, and I know we're, we're probably just echoing what most of you right, out exactly. there are thinking. But. but this is not to denigrate the sense of community that that same social media can foster, such, such as oh, what we're doing right now. Exactly. The, bro- exactly. the, the webcast that the History Center is doing. So, you know, uh, we'll leave it at that. That there's the, As one of your favorite philosophers— <laughs> There are, there are many different types of truths. You know, I'm paraphrasing you. Yes. Yeah. There are many different benefits and, and things to, to everything. And so uh, with that, gentle listener, we'll leave you until next time. Hope you have a truly safe time. Absolutely. Twix now and then. All right. Bye. Then Again with Ken and Glenn is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. If you've enjoyed listening to Then Again with Ken and Glenn, please make sure that you subscribe and help us out by writing a review. To learn more about the Northeast Georgia History Center, visit www.negahc.org.